What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of teen reading, historical fiction, and STEM. Our first guest is teacher and author Penny Kittle, and we'll talk about the importance of encouraging teenagers to read. Then we'll chat with Jennifer Nielsen about one of her historical fiction novels. Finally, we'll discuss STEM education with James Porter from the Krista McCullough Space Center. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review of Rosie Revere Engineer and learn a few strategies to get children to read. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Let's talk for a minute about one of my favorite ways to teach. While all teachers have a variety of ways to approach instruction, one of my favorites is the model of inquiry learning. Inquiry learning at its base is focused on teaching students how to learn. In an environment based in inquiry, we are not reciting facts and figures, nor are we checking off boxes in a standardized form. For me, one of the greatest benefits of inquiry learning is that it is student-centered. Using this model, students are asked to be an integral part of the learning process. No longer will students only sit and take in what the instructor has to offer. In an inquiry learning environment, they will be engaged both as learners and oftentimes as teachers. Ultimately, inquiry puts the onus on the student in the process of creating meaning. When using inquiry learning models, teachers must design learning experiences that allow students to examine, investigate, question, and reflect so that they become aware of their own learning styles, processes, and strategies. I'm sure at this point, most of you out there listening to Rachel's World are finding this all very interesting, but are now wondering how it applies to you. Well, I think it applies directly because if you have ever had a child in your life, then it's likely that you have been the recipient of questions. Why is the sky blue? Why do people get sick? Why can't I stay up past 10? If you have ever been in this situation, then you will have been at the forefront of an inquiry learning experience. You may just not have known what to call it. I find that inquiry is a natural state for learning. Think about almost any great invention or scientific discovery, and there will almost certainly be a problem behind it. Great inventors and scientists confronted these problems by asking questions and then using a variety of methods to discover a solution. This process used for centuries to create the world we now live in is the process of inquiry. As human beings, we naturally question, and then it's our natural inclination to work to find the answers to these questions. So here at Rachel's World, we advocate for inquiry learning. We say, bring on the questions, because it is just that kind of learning that is one of the right ways to nurture independent, actively engaged learners. Rachel's World. 
reading is so important to children's lives and teens' lives. But getting them to have that passion, that love for reading, that love for books can be challenging. We are so excited to welcome into studio today on the phone with us Penny Kittle, who is one of those passionate educators and scholars and book lovers who loves to talk about how do we get kids to love books. Welcome, Penny. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am very excited today to introduce you and your passion to our listeners. So to start out, tell us a little bit about how do you view that kind of context of what does that idea of book love or getting kids to love books, what does that look like for you? Well, I think it's about reimagining the life of a teenager surrounded by books that truly interest and engage that kid. And I think um, for so long we have accepted a narrative that when kids hit adolescence, they're not as interested in reading and that there'll be a few kids who hang on to reading, but most kids just aren't interested and are busy with other things. And with the advent of, you know, phones in the hands of most kids, I hear it again and again that, you know, you just don't understand kids don't want to read. And I always say that it's about it's about the book as much as anything else. And so I work really hard to find engaging books that will take readers on a journey and deal with that adolescent mindset of, you know, I'm, I'm ready to explore the world. I'm ready to break out of where I've been. What are the guides that I want to follow? And there are so many wise guides in fiction and in nonfiction where authors have crafted these characters that, a kid wants to follow and learn from. That concept of wise guides is something that I just really connect to personally. And I know that I have had other teachers and even teens who are looking for that kind of thing, that wise guide. So characterize those books for us. Maybe give us some examples or what kinds of wise guides do you direct your students to? Well, and, you know, every reader is as individual as all of us as readers, and that means that when we walk into a classroom, we've got 30 kids that are thinking about different things and are challenged by different things. And so the biggest bulk of my work is about independent reading and getting each kid to engage in their lives as readers. And so I think about, you know, I always buy the National Book Award shortlist, and I buy all the books on it. I look for books that Um, The Young People's Literature Award each year is given to books that are exactly what my kids are looking for. You know, this year's winner was the Poet X, Elizabeth Acevedo's Amazing Journey of a Kid. Gorgeous book, yeah. Gorgeous book, yeah. trying to find her way, you know, as a spoken word poet. And on that same short list, a very large, expansive sea, which deals with a romance, a relationship in high school, but through the lens of a Muslim girl trying to make her way in that community. And Will Fly Away is two boys that have just horrific home lives, but they've found each other as best friends. And and the way I sell it to kids is I show them the very first chapter. You know, these best friends are going to help each other out. But the first chapter is a letter from one to the other from death row. So something cataclysmic has happened. And so my students are just kind of propelled to read and to understand how does life unfold for all of these characters in different settings with different challenges? Where do the challenges that I feel fit next to those? And likewise, you know, like They're There by Tommy Orange is this kaleidoscope book of 
all of these indigenous people gathering in Oakland for a powwow. And it's these short little individual portraits, very much like the things they carried, that allow a kid to see one thing from multiple perspectives, to not be caught in the danger of the single story, as um, Adichie says. And I think that the the key for me is I every single day bring in books that I think kids will love, that I have loved, or no kids, other kids have loved, and then make those books available, give them time to read, and, and talk to them about what they're thinking about their reading. Now, I think people that are listening will notice um, that you're mentioning a lot of contemporary young adult <laughs> novels here. And as a teacher, I think sometimes they would expect you to be mentioning more of the classics. But I really appreciate when you say, how do we see where the struggles that I am fitting match the struggles that this character is fitting? So how do you think contemporary young adult literature is doing that for teens, seeing their own struggles in a new light through the lives of these characters that they're reading about? Well, I think that it's important to remember that young adult literature has a protagonist between the ages of 13 to 19. And that's the only thing that really separates it from the way we speak about literature as a whole. It often has important themes. It's crafted beautifully. It has um, a journey that a character is on or a series of characters are on. And so many of the things that we want to teach kids about literature of course, are held within young adult books. But because the protagonist is the age that they're at, they can immediately connect to the feelings and ideas and experiences that those characters have. And that is so significant in making that connection and making that independent reading happen as that book love that you're talking about, not necessarily just reading it for school or reading it for other reasons. It's it's finding something you're passionate about. Is that the way you look at it? I do. And I also think that it provides this opportunity to have kids interact with big ideas that are happening in the world. And so a book like Internment by Samira Ahmed, which is about Muslims being interned in present day, much like we interned the Japanese and a one young girl who resists, you have a chance for kids to play out what is this I'm hearing in the media and then what might it look like in fiction. Or they can read nonfiction like the 57 bus and look at an encounter between a transgender teen and a group of teens who don't understand um, why that young man that they see as a young man is wearing a skirt, right? And so then you, and it happened in the news. It's something they can really think about. So I think what we want independent reading to do is provide places where kids see themselves, but also see the world and enter worlds that they'll never live in, but they are hungry to understand. And I think hungry to also navigate because so many of these titles that you're mentioning deal with such big ideas that are often hard to get our minds around or things that may be outside of our experience, our direct experience that we need to get our minds around. And having that experience through books just allows our kids to be more literate about their society, about their government, about about their social interactions, all of those kinds of things. So it's not necessarily just about the reading literacies we're looking at. We're also looking at some some broader literacies here as well. Absolutely. You know, we know that um, there's a wide range of benefits to reading, you know, expanded vocabulary there 
critical thinking, their engagement with the world. They're more likely to be dynamic citizens. And I think that all of the things we desire from our young people as leaders of the future can be captured in the things that they'll learn as they read. And so when you don't hear me mentioning the classics, it's because those books represent about 25% of my vision of a year of reading for kids so that they can gather around Romeo and Juliet as ninth graders or another book that the community of the school has determined is important for all kids to read and to pay attention to the fact that we have read white male authors for the last 120 years and that the variety of authors that kids have access to now should probably help us reform our curriculum so that we are paying attention to the depictions of all different ethnicities across literature. That statement you make, it's the community of people that who have determined that this is a book that is important for these kids to read, I think speaks volumes and actually has some interesting connotations for what we do as teachers and oftentimes what we do as parents, the types of books that we think our teens should be reading. Sometimes I think as parents or concerned adults, we say, oh, you should read this because it was something we loved or something that we found interesting, but it may not connect with the teens who are reading it. So how how do we get that kind of personal understanding for each teen in our lives and help direct them to the books that are right for them? Yeah, I always start with, you know, what are you interested in when I talk to a kid? What are the, you know, the series on Netflix that you watched most recently? What are the movies you like? What magazines would you pick up? Although not a lot of kids read magazines. Who do you follow on Instagram? Who are these people that you respond to? Because you might be able to find um, there was a young man who's into boxing and the life story of the hurricane, right? Absolutely captivated him. What we want is to get a kid back into the habit of regular reading. If they've lost it, you get them back in. And then you can start saying, okay, so I've noticed that you've read all books that are about teen relationships so far this year. What's a place where you could challenge yourself? What kind of reading could you do that could move you as a reader? And it might be that you want to read biographies or you want to read memoir or poetry, or you might decide to read stories from the world written by authors telling their stories in their own voices. There are so many places you can send a reader so that each year is their own individual journey. But it starts with knowing that kid. And if you're a parent and you feel like, I can't get my kid to finish any book. Walk them around the local library and just look at all that's there and talk about books and find one maybe that the two of you could read together. Because those were some of our most powerful moments as parents with our kids during the teen years. Read alouds. Well, let's begin that journey. Let's find those books that speak to our teens and help them begin that journey as a reader and into a strong reader identity. Thank you so much, Penny, for your time today. Thank you. Penny Kittle is a teacher and author. Now we have story time with Maisie Cryer reviewing the picture book Rosie Revere Engineer by Andrea Betty. Rosie Revere Engineer is the kind of picture book that just invites you to pull it off the shelf and read it. And I think what first intrigued me about this book was the title, how it rhymes, which is perfect because the whole book rhymes, which makes it fun to read because it just flows easily when you're reading it out loud. And I also just love the cover. There's a picture of little Rosie Revere with her uncle, who is wearing helium pants that she invented and made. So it's a really fun and inviting cover. And then throughout the whole book, 
just the text and the illustrations, they really work together and complement each other. There's um, on some pages, there's even graph paper that's been included in the illustrations, which just adds to that theme of like creativity and invention. Um, also, a little fun fact that I discovered after reading it the first time is that on every single page, there's a little yellow bird in the illustration. So that makes it fun while you're reading it to try and look for that bird on the page. So in this story, Rosie, she dreams of being an engineer, but she keeps it secret after being laughed at and feeling like a failure. So when her aunt, her great-great-aunt, Rose, comes to visit, it sparks Rosie to try again. And eventually, Rosie discovers that the only true failure can come if you quit. And I think this is just such an important message for all of us as well as for young children. And not just in engineering, but really in anything that we want to accomplish. This book could be a great tool for parents and teachers in helping students learn persistence. It promotes a growth mindset and it just reminds us to focus on the process of creating and learning, not just the outcome. I think we can all relate to Rosie and her fear of failing. I know I definitely can. But her great-great-aunt Rose helps teach her that flops can actually be successes. They're the stepping stones to help us learn and improve. So in the book, Rosie actually, she will hide the things that she makes under her bed. Because she doesn't want anyone to see them and criticize them. And I think this example helps remind us not to hide our passions. And then also to be less critical of what others are working on when their work's in progress. And so while this book, it's fun and it's playful, but also just has that important message for anyone that reads it. And something else I loved about this book is that there's a great historical connection. Her great-great-aunt Rose represents Rosie the Riveter, who's the fictional but iconic figure of woman working during World War I. Whether that was working on farms or working in the factories to actually build the airplanes and other machines they needed for the war. So this connection, it's alluded to throughout the whole book, and then at the end they have a little historical note to provide more information. And one page has in it, um, in its illustration, the slogan of Rosie the Riveter, which is, We Can Do It, which adds perfectly to that theme and the lesson that Rosie learns. The illustrations on another page, they also show different pictures of aircrafts and talks more about famous women aviators, which I think is great because they're lesser known, but it can help kids be interested in that. So I loved how this picture book, Rosie Revere Engineer, just can open that gate for children to learn more about history. You know, it could easily be built on in a classroom to explore and have more instruction, whether that's in World War I or aviation or just famous people in our nation's history. So this author, Andrea Beatty and the illustrator, they've also written another book called Iggy Peck Architect, another one called Ada Twist Scientist. So there's some other great books out there that you can add to your classroom library or your home library to just encourage kids to be creative and you know to work hard, to have that persistence. So overall, I felt like this was just a delightful children's book, and I think it would appeal to all ages. The experiences of Rosie and the message in it is important and relevant to encourage children to explore and create, and really for all of us to not be afraid to fail. I definitely recommend Rosie Revere Engineer. Understanding history is an important part of being human. We can learn from the actions of past generations and hopefully not repeat past mistakes. 
One way children learn about history and the world around them is through historical fiction novels. We're in the studio today with author Jennifer Nilsson. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me here. Jennifer, we're going to chat today about one of your newest books, Resistance, which is a beautiful historical fiction novel, um, powerful, powerful novel um, that shows the journey of some really courageous young people in Nazi Germany and how they stood up for things that they knew were wrong. So to start off, give us kind of a synopsis of the book. Um. When the uh, Nazis invaded Poland, uh, Poland fell in like three weeks. It was so fast. And they uh, shifted the capital down to Krakow. And because that was going to be their capital, they only allowed 15,000 Jews to stay who they moved into the Krakow ghetto and sealed it. Uh, All the rest were kicked out into the countryside. Many of those kicked out were the teenagers. And all of a sudden, these kids are in the countryside uh, in a occupied country that is not Jewish friendly. They had no idea where to go, but they remembered they had scout leaders, the Drangers. And uh, many of these teens ended up on the farm belonging to the Drangers. Uh, There they were isolated from the war for a short time, but they started hearing what was happening to their families. And as they did, they began to realize if we stay here, it is only a matter of time before the Nazis come for us and we will die on our knees to the Nazis. Uh, In actual history, the Drangers proposed an alternative. They could uh, get on their feet and fight back. And uh, in actual history, these Jewish teenagers made the decision to form a resistance movement out of Krakow. And I'm going to follow some of these teenagers um, from the ghettos of Krakow all the way up to the Warsaw Ghetto in time for the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, uh, a resistance movement that lasted longer against the Nazis than the entire country of Poland lasted against the Nazis. It really is just a powerful, powerful story. And I, I love stories like this with history, where we see children and teens making a difference. And I think particularly for children and teens today, to see kids doing things, doing hard things, is is so evocative of what our youth need to stand up and do today. And you don't pull any punches. I mean, from page one, we know what terrible straits uh, your characters are in. The the first chapter is about her going into the ghetto um, to retrieve a baby and to yeah. take a baby out of the ghetto. And it is just, you know, edge of your seat kind of, is she going to get away? Is she going to get this baby out? And, you know, there's, there's all of these different things that happen that could have gotten her caught and shot and, you know, killed immediately. And, you know, it doesn't let up from there. And the fact that this is true, that this is based on truth and all of these things just makes it even more powerful. So why why this story? Why, why were you compelled to tell this amazing story? I was so fascinated. Um, you know, very often when, when we write historical novels, we take this larger world and then we kind of thread a young person into it, like their perspective on this wider world. I was so fascinated that in actual history, this was the teenagers. I'm not threading them in. These were, in many cases, it's, it's youth who are 15, 16, 17. 
17 years old who actually did this, and most of them young women. And and so it's not this contrived situation. It's like, no, this really was. You'd get a 16-year-old girl who's walking up to the gates of a ghetto, and she's got to face that Nazi officer and look him in the eye. And the courage and strength of these girls absolutely was riveting to me. And in actual history, it was the young people who saved hundreds of Jewish lives during the war. And I love this particular take on it as well, because she's really standing up to her parents in in addition, because her parents aren't entirely aware of what she's doing, but they aren't really wanting her to do that. They, they're wanting her to just conform and, you know, not be, um, you know, just kind of keep her head down and not make any waves. But she believes in this so fully that she commits herself a hundred million percent, even to the fact that there is several times that, you know, she's very close to death and very close to being caught. That sense of bravery and courage just is amazing and comes through on the page so evocatively. Was that hard to write? Was that kind of where you're constantly on the threat of death and you're facing this bravery? How do you as an author live that emotion for for that long that it takes to write that book? It was hard for me to read it, um, let alone think about you living in this world and writing it. What kind of challenges did you have? You know, what I did is um, up on the wall of my office, I uh, created a poster with um, pictures of all of these youth who actually did it. And so, and it's still up, like I cannot take this poster down. And it's the ones who actually did it. And that was so inspirational to me because I realized this never was, I mean, although it's a fictional story, in my mind, it actually was those people. And, And a lot of my research really was helpful in terms of if fear becomes your base level emotion, it it stops being relevant. And so when we come to the outside and we insert our own fears, that they weren't that way because that was just the normal. And so once it becomes your normal, you are free to do things inconceivable to you and I. Um, and once you accept that we probably will not survive this, there's freedom in that. Right, Because you're no longer fighting for your life, and it gives you freedom to fight for higher causes. And in actual history, um, the adults, they, they hadn't yet. By 1942, at the end of 42 and the early 43, when this book takes place, most uh, Jewish adults still had not accepted this is a holocaust. Most were in, this is an isolation, we do what we're told, because the ghettos couldn't communicate with each other. So they were so dependent on the lies of the Nazis. These Jewish youth who were moving as couriers, they were the ones who knew the truth. So Haya had to be so committed to what she was doing. Well, and so committed that she's willing to do things like lie. I mean, she even has to represent herself as kind of an Aryan Polish woman and deny her religious heritage in a very fundamental way. And there are parts in the book where you you address that with her where she's she she does kind of reminisce that some of this it's hard because I can't be Jewish anymore and you know and thinking about her grandmother and you know if, if I say this other name am I still connected to my grandmother in a very fundamental way and that loss of identity 
I it it is a powerful theme within this book, right? With the the Nazis taking away their Jewish identities and their identities as individuals, but then trying to embrace where that identity is and what power and courage that gives me as an individual. And I think that that is such a powerful message even for today because I think sometimes we get assumed our identities get assumed by like social media or other, what other people say to us and being able to say I can be something that I want to be even when other people are telling me I can't is such a very powerful even modern thematic connection. So is that Something that you saw as you wrote this book and one of the reasons you needed to tell this story was to help empower teens today to stand up and to be individuals and face down these horrendous evils that they might be encountering. Oh, absolutely. You know, anytime, anytime that you see a huge social advances, that's almost always led by the youth. And and so, you know, we as adults might be – we're slower to respond. We're a little more jaded. And you, and if we can empower these young people to help them believe, like, really, you can change this world. And, and, I, and I absolutely loved that. But, you know, part of the book, though, is addressing there were many, many forms of resistance. Holding on to your religion was resistance. And throwing bread over the ghetto walls is resistance. And, and it wasn't all – um, warfare, that resistance really, it's holding on to the core of who you are, even when the world threatens to just pull that apart from you. And that comes through so clearly in this book in so many ways, allowing us to see what that is and how, how different people respond to it. This book isn't entirely happy. There, there's a lot of, of real sadness in this book. And in fact, I, there were several times that I was in tears seeing what was happening to this. But there is such great joy and hope on the other end. Um, I, I love at the end you talk about how a lot of people say, oh, you know, well, these resistances didn't work. You know, they, they weren't, you know, a lot of people say they failed, right? But they really didn't. They saved individuals. They, you know, there's this hope and this sense of, of grace that goes through this to help us see that they did a great work, even though, you know, they didn't overthrow the Nazis or, you know, anything like that. They, But they made such a difference. And we need to acknowledge that that little difference. So as we close our conversation today, Tell us a little bit about what you would hope readers would take from this book and this these multiple themes and ideas. Where would you like to see a reader end up after they've finished reading this book? I would love for a reader to understand that every single individual has power and power to change. I would love for somebody to feel greater courage to stand up for what they believe in, even if what they believe in is not popular, even if what they believe in is going to get, you know, the uh, symbolic rocks thrown at them, that there is – the core of what you believe has value. And, uh, and ultimately, I would love for readers to understand the, um, the value of sacrifice that we in this life have a higher purpose than simply to just check off everything that, you know, on our to-do list for the day that we, we have a higher purpose and that if we are following that, everything else is going to come into line for us. So beautiful, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I I think that this will be something 
that is going to have a lot of conversation when people start reading this book. Powerful, powerful book about a, a tough time in history, but some courageous people that face that down and great lessons for us in our modern era as well. Thank you. Jennifer Nielsen is the author of Resistance and Traitor's Game. Now, let's listen to Christy Kirtland, a librarian from the Provost Elementary School, as she shares her techniques to get kids reading. I think the most important thing to engaging kids with reading is to let them see you enjoy it first. And you're excited about all these things that you're learning or that you are reading about or characters' journeys. They tend to get excited and they want to fill that excitement for themselves. So then they want to read what you're reading so that they can talk about it with you and have something to connect with. Kids love to connect with like their teachers or their peers or you know people older than them so if they have that connection they'll and they see that you love it they'll start reading if parents just (laughs) reading a book to get through that book then the students will see it as a chore if parents are like enjoying it and they're creating conversation with their kids if you don't know how to talk to your student read a book with them and it will automatically give you something to talk about you know and so then the the students feel this warm connection like they have something in common with their parents and that actually bonds the family plus creates that love of reading because it's such a good feeling when they're reading because their parents are paying attention to them here's what here's what I do I have 13 different reading programs to try and get to every child's interest. So we have a graphic novel program. We have a Newbery program. We have a call to call, which focuses on the art. So people who are interested in, in art and how they create the art. And each award has to do with that program. A lot of them are free books. So I've, in, I've really pushed my students to create their own home library because they don't Yay! have books in their home. <laughs> and this is one way they can earn free books for their home by doing these readings. And then that book belongs to them forever. And the look on their faces when they get their first book, if they've never had a book that belongs to them, is is priceless. They are so excited and they will read that book over and over and over and over again. You know, so we also have what we also have like an explore program where they can learn about the world and then write a report about a country. We have a science program for those that are interested in the nonfiction where it's reading 500 pages of different science books, anything they want from animals to space to dinosaurs at their level so you know even if they're in fifth grade and they're at a second grade level they can still do it they just read it at their level and they get a science experiment kit to go with that one for the caldecott they get art supplies so that they can make their own drawings and become an illustrator so the rewards really are based on what they're reading and have to do with that program this way every child can participate every child can get an award they just have to put in the effort to do it And once they start and they get that first prize, they want to do all of them. And if they do do all of them, then they get $10 to the book fair to spend on books for their home or to Scholastic book orders, depending on the timing. So it's all about giving them those books back so that they can they can own them they can mark them they can read them I just recently had one of my students come to me and he just got a free book from doing one of these programs and he's like yay I have five books I made out a checkout system so if you want to check out one of my books you can come (laughs) to me and check it out and he was so excited to have a library at his house if your child reads your their scores go up automatically on end of the year testing and they're more creative. They start thinking outside of the box. They look at life differently. They develop empathy. There's so many good things that come from developing this love for reading. 
Children learn so many different things at school. These diverse subjects help create a well-rounded child, ready to explore the world with all the tools necessary to be successful. Today, I would love to dive deeper into the subjects of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. That's why I have James Porter from the Krista McAuliffe Space Center in the studio. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to introduce you to our listening audience today. You work at a local Space Center planetarium that works here in Utah. And one of the things you do there is to promote STEM and to promote all of these wonderful foundational science skills. So to start off today, tell us a little bit about why you think these skills in STEM and the skills you teach as part of your experience are so important for kids today. Uh, You know... As I worked on my master's degree, I looked at it and I did a lot of reading about what are the government's perspectives of this need and, and what are all of these different programs that are going on. And one of the things that stood out to me is we need it because kids get excited about these subjects. You know, it's Some of them get really excited about reading and some of them get excited about writing, but all of them – seem to have some connection to science or technology or you know these are the things where they get their hands involved and not just that but their minds are cranking just like those gears i love that you know the universal symbol for stem seems to be a gear and it's perfect here's something that's moving here's something that's producing something and so i think the stem as we we look at it and and steam even when we in- integrate art is so important uh, it's just as important because there's something hands-on that gets them to create, gets them to problem-solve. You go through and you say, STEM's important because here we're going to build or solve a problem. And in that same way with art even, I'm going to produce a work. Okay, well, I don't just go to the art shop and you talk about Da Vinci and you say, Da Vinci didn't go to the store and buy his paints. He had to go through and figure out how to crush these different things and, and how to balance the chemicals perfectly. You go, wait – eventually was a scientist and you go, he's the best scientist. You don't even know. <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, and you go through and you look at this and I think that's why STEM is so essential as we look at this because these are things that are engaging and these are things that are going to influence them into their careers. Um, whether or not they go into something engineering related or math related, these are skills that they need um, in the processing orders as they do um, computational thinking to go through and see these sequences and figuring it all out. And so in looking at our, our space center as an example and kind of making a connection, the, the STEM aspect is that it's just a natural part of this experiential learning. And what a great way to use this tool to help teachers make more connections because it's difficult. You throw in them and you say, hey, teachers, we need you to go through and do these STEM activities. And they go, oh, I don't know if I can do that. And we go, you can. You're doing it already. Here's how you integrate it. Here's how you go through and make a connection. Here's how you use technology to enhance it. And by doing that, you're teaching technology. And and so I look at it and it's just trying to – as I look at the initiatives that are going on, we're realizing and taking a step back, uh, in my opinion, and saying, hey, these things we want naturally to happen – Let's start putting them in our lesson plans. Let's start making it just a natural part of the process in learning. You mentioned integration, which to me is a key word that that I'm really passionate about. I, I think for very long we've kind of 
siloed all of the disciplines, right? You know, there's biology and there's physics and there's astronomy and Mm -hmm. there's, you know, math and all of these types of things. And we've done that to kind of help us get our minds around what these kinds of things are. But when you really look at it, and I think your Da Vinci example is so wonderful that it really isn't siloed like that. In in the real world, it's everything, right? History and social studies and math and science and art and everything is all integrated in our lives. And I I love that these kinds of experiences, when we do experiential learning with these kinds of, of STEAM experiences or STEM experiences allow us to kind of bring that integration back and understand that, you know, da Vinci was doing chemistry as well as art and putting that all together. So how do you see that holistic thing happening, making this more interdisciplinary than it was before? Uh, I think a lot of it is taking the blinders off. I think it's getting teachers and administration to step back and recognize and say, hey, these STEM activities are happening. And our teachers are already doing some of them, and they need to recognize it and just kind of help the students recognize it. Because as soon as the educators start to realize I'm doing activities that are interdisciplinary or with a small tweak, I can bring these things together and teach one unit, that recognition I think is probably the turning point as as far as myself. Because even as I went and look at some of the – as I would teach lessons in history, uh, I would just talk to the other – art teacher that was next door to me and I'd say, hey, we're covering ancient Egypt. What sort of stuff are you guys doing that is maybe connected? And they'd say, oh, well, you know, we're drawing these small symbols. Uh, Maybe we can talk about and just say a sentence where the kids go through and say, hey, these symbols are hieroglyphics and you guys are using symbols but in this other way in art class. And I I said two sentences and I made a connection. And so I think getting that recognition and, and understanding that we are all working together is a simple way because then as soon as you start to recognize, you start seeing ways that you could add those next layers. So I, I think that the big part is for us to see good examples. There's lots of good examples and not to be overwhelmed and go, oh, that was amazing. I can't do that. It's too amazing. <laughs> But instead to say, that was amazing. You know, I kind of do do that. And and take a little bit of ownership and say, you know what, I, I can push myself a little bit more. Um, but I don't have to push hard to get that extra little bit of outreach. And that little extra makes such a big difference. You mentioned that you are a social studies teacher originally. So you started out with the social sciences and social studies and history. And now you're more in this kind of STEM world. How do you see those two connecting? How how do those how does that pathway seem logical for those of us that might look at it and think, oh, you went from social studies to science. That's two different things, right? How do you, how do you connect those two personally in your work? Uh, you know, the connections probably happened too much uh, back when I was teaching because I would sit there and we'd talk about inventions and we'd talk about how they worked. And then I'd go, oh, I've got 20 minutes less. <laughs> I've got well, – let's let's get uh, back to what we were talking about. Yeah. But I, I think sharing your individual passions, um, that's what kids walk away with a lot of times. They remember what their teacher was really passionate about. And and usually if if that passion is connected with the content that you're covering, they do all right on the tests and they're, they're getting what they need. Um, and it's just you continuing to help your passions connect to the curriculum. Um, and so it's really interesting as I have stepped into this Space Center role, um, I look at the, the 
the building of our new planetarium and raising funds and getting that all constructed is just me trying to take that passion that I go, I love watching the new SpaceX rockets and I love watching them touch down because I watched them in the 90s when the shuttles were launching. But I go, oh, okay, I need to show this video clip to my students so that they can watch and say, let's talk about the math and how long they calculated that burn time. And at first we just watch it and they go, that was cool. And we go, yeah, these two rockets, they landed at the same time. And then we go, okay, let's rewind. Let's talk about the math. Let's talk about what's happening um, for those astronauts to prepare. What sort of physical changes are happening in their bodies if they're landing in that capsule into the ocean? What kind of impact would that have? And you spark their imagination, get them thinking. And, and STEM, when they're processing things, that's what we're looking towards. Uh, and so I, I look at it and I say, well, science and social studies are all interconnected in my mind. Um, so I, I don't look at it as much of a change. Uh, there are two things that I love. Yeah. There are things that I, I get excited about, and and I love them because I, I took the time to learn about them. And that's what I think STEM initiatives are really uh, moving towards. Those STEM initiatives are moving towards saying, hey, let's get kids excited about these things because they've maybe lost their focus or we've gotten them too good at spelling only. Uh, and so I, I look at it, you know, we shift back and forth in education a lot. Um, but to me, making this shift over to, to a science focus is that I secretly am not science focused. I'm everything focused yeah. uh, from the social aspects that are going on in the experiences to the, the, the social studies and history connections that we get to make. We, we do World War II scenarios in space and the kids don't realize it until they go to that chapter later on in the, the year. And so I think STEM, what's nice about the initiative with STEM is that everybody's starting to say, oh, these are the really important things. And we're just going to keep adding letters until everybody realizes everything's important. <laughs> I love that statement that we're just going to keep adding letters until we realize everybody thinks it's important. Because I think sometimes, particularly parents and people that are looking at these these STEM initiatives, they they think very black and white about them, but they really aren't. They really are these great depths of, you know, history and, and social constructs. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking about the book Hidden Figures and the movie that came out based on the book um, about the African-American women that helped with the space uh, race and all of that type of thing. And I think, you know, that's very much sociology, which is one of my disciplines, but it's also science and math and, you know, how how that was affected by our social culture of the time. And mm -hmm. so it really is, you're right. It's yeah. it's all just one big whole. And I love that you're sharing that with students in that very way. How do you think that this this context, particularly that you do with the Space Center, then brings that kind of full circle, allows you to provide this kind of STEM context that does provide everything? I think the nice thing about the Space Center and, and the fact that we're an established educational resource is that people look to it and they go, okay, here's something that I trust. What are they teaching? What are they? Uh, what tools are they using? And teachers can go back and say, okay, how do I use it? So we get every year just in field trips 9,000 kids that go through and do our field trip. But then I keep track and I say, okay, that means we've got about 300-plus teachers that go through and say, here is this cool experience. I wish I could do that. And we whisper to them, we say, you can. This is something you can do in your classroom. You don't do it to our level, 
But here's these activities that get you engaged uh, and get your students engaged in it. And so I think the, the value of the Space Center is here is a beacon. And, and in many ways, it's being replicated. Uh, there are other entities and groups that are starting to take this simulated learning and say, hey, let's, let's really make it. There's um, simulators as far as Brazil uh, that are based off the concept. A BYU student took the idea, and he's built it, and he and he's got a whole bunch of facilities out in Pennsylvania, and that's what the the space center is. And any program that says we want to approach it differently is hopefully it becomes a beacon that if someone says that's something I can grab onto, that's an educational tool we want to use. Let's go build it and let's replicate it, and then work together so that we all benefit. Um, so I think that's the value of the Space Center in STEM is we get to show people how you can do it. It's not the only way to do it, but it's a way that we found very effective. And I think it is extremely effective, and I hope our listening audience will look for other experiences near them of these types of things. I'm sure there's other opportunities out there that they can go to. But thank you so much, Mr. Porter, for elucidating STEM for us and helping us to understand that it's really more holistic than we once thought it was. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. James Porter is the director of the Krista McCullough Space Center in Pleasant Grove, Utah. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Andrew and Emily Garrett, student librarians at BYU. All right. So there is a lot of importance when we use children's literature to teach and to portray culture and to help us learn about the world around us. So using literature to teach is a significant thing. And I think everybody does it. Parents do it. Teachers do it. Everybody does it. But when we do use literature to teach and for a specific teaching opportunity, I think there's a lot of things we have to pay attention to. And we have been particularly looking at historical fiction and the pitfalls of how historical fiction works and then applying it to teaching. So tell me what you, some of your thoughts about that. What, what are some of the things that we need to pay attention to or things we need to do, particularly as we're looking at historical fiction in kind of that teaching context? I think the very first thing an education, educator should do is look in the back and see if there's an author's note. Yes. <laughs> Underscore, <laughs> line, yes, big letters. <laughs> Most of these books have author's notes and they'll explain, they'll try to explain what inaccuracies there may be or what background knowledge isn't given to the book. And most of these books don't actually give you very much historical context. And for these children to be able to interact with it, the teacher needs to know what they need to supplement the books with. Yeah. And in all honesty, I would recommend read the historical note first before mm-hmm. you use it in the teaching context. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think the author's note is where comes the creativity of the book as well mm. um, to help children understand how the beautiful, like how it was created, what they're adding to it, and it can help them see what's true and not true. So you're not confusing children at all about what they're adding and contributing to the historical genre as well. Yeah, and that that's the tricky line, particularly with historical fiction, is that some of it's not true and some of it is true. And that can be tricky for kids to navigate. And those author's notes are, you know, a really great place for them to make that kind of navigational movement as they're moving forward. It also shows a lot about what purpose the author had in writing the book. So first of all, you could find some really interesting tidbits about how it might have been inspired from some famous figure that you had no, that you didn't realize was connected to the story at all. But at the same time, sometimes the author's notes will point out 
was the author actually trying to be very historical about this and use this for teaching history? Or was this just converted from an audio drama or used because they had these leftover pictures sitting around and there's all these like multiple purposes for which these books are written and you really want the ones that were written because the author had a story to tell to children that they wanted them to actually be able to relate and connect with. Yeah, and I think that's true of all children's literature, right? (laughs) You want that, that intended purpose is there. But particularly with historical fiction, I think when that's not their intended purpose, because some of the books that I don't really like, it's because their intent and purpose was something else that it didn't yes. work. Right. And, yeah. And, you know, coming from, I, I know a lot more from the publishing standpoint, a lot of books are sometimes just published because they wrote, uh, an older, like an adult version or, yes. uh, yeah. a young adult version that was so successful. They're like, Let's make a children's version of it and that'll just sell really well. Sometimes books are just made because they'll just make a lot of money, not necessarily because yeah. <laughs> they so have true. really great yeah. teaching. Yeah. It ability. seems to be a common temptation for them to say that we already have this content and we could just put it into these different mediums. Like they're just like, oh, we can make a movie. Oh, we can do an audiobook. And they're thinking this way and they're saying, oh, we can do a picture book. And that is a terrible idea. It needs to be <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> as yes. a picture book for a picture book for children yeah. or it'll go over their heads or come off as really insincere. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to, is it for an adult or is it for a child? Yeah. 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 Doing it? And I think yeah. a lot of those mediums that they, the adults love it, so they'll yeah. buy it, but it's not necessarily. Yeah, because the adults have the money. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it does become a very commerce driven kind of capitalist kind of thing. And for me, that gets really tricky because, I mean, as people know, when you see a movie and it's written off a book, they're never the same because they're two different mediums, right? And they tell stories in two different ways. And the same is true of picture books, right? Mm -hmm. They tell stories in two different ways. I mean, I think one of the examples that comes to mind when we talk about this is a book called How Will You Handle, which was originally an audio drama, like a radio drama. And in that context... It was probably a really good story. It's a really great story, right? But then when you try to put it into a picture book... Because you're switching genres um, or switching formats, it becomes really odd. Well, it's like (laughs) over 20 minutes to read. Like (laughs) what? Like, okay, imagine you're reading something to your four-year-old nephew and – a page takes more than five minutes. Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that that yes. doesn't work. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, but in an audio drama, 20 minutes would be fine, Perfectly right? Reasonable. But with a picture book, not so much, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. And I think kind of going off of like age appropriateness and mediums and the medium in which this, the story is told is really important. I mean, some of them are told by through the eyes of a child. Some of them are told through the eyes of animals as we've discussed before and I think that's really important of looking how are these children going to internalize these stories and without trivializing them because sometimes if it is through a child are they portraying it in an appropriate way but a way that the children can still understand what's trying to be taught yeah so you want to look at the after the author's book I'd say then you open it and you want (laughs) to see are these illustrations the main mode of explaining tone and setting. You don't want them to be doing paragraphs and paragraphs of them establishing setting and staging and how the characters are feeling. That's a waste of space. It's a waste of time. The the kids will first look at, even older kids, like 12-year-olds with their research, the, the older kids will look at the book and they'll see the expressions of the characters and that's what they'll say, oh, it's probably this time period and this is how the characters are feeling and that influences how they hear the words. The adults do the opposite. They listen, They look for these verbal cues. Yeah. And so if it's written for children, you want to look at the, you want to see these really beautiful illustrations that'll explain the setting and the, how the character's feeling with just a couple lines. Yeah. And I think that is 
pulling the main reason that it's a picture book, right? Because the picture should tell, in my estimation, the picture should tell at least 50% of the story, right? It needs mm-hmm. to be balanced. Well, in audio yeah. drama, you can't see anything. Yeah. So they're just relying yeah, on... Yeah, on the words. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that I mean, that's a really that's a really great example of the difference of the, this this format of a picture book has to rely on both to tell a really good story. And if it's not, if it's just the words or just the pictures, then it doesn't work. Right. Cause we found one that was just the pictures. Like it's our favorite example, escape from Pompeii. <laughs> right? And the pictures in it are stunning, but the words are like horrible. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you want a, you want very sincere words that are just easy for a child to understand. And you just want a few lines of text. Yeah, and that, so that makes a that makes a big difference. So, okay, author's note: looking at the illustrations, great way to end. Thanks. I'd like to thank Andrew and Emily Garrett for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. First, we chatted with author Penny Kittle about encouraging teens to read. Then we talked with Jennifer Nielsen about her book Resistance. Lastly, we discussed STEM education with James Porter from the Krista McCullough Space Center. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.